0: Hello and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We wanna help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. So what I wanna do is now, I wanna to go to starting on the five crowns and um, what I'm going to uh, focus in on the, is the crown of life, and to understand the crown of life, you have to understand, uh, first of all, the book of James, and then I'll take you to the book of Revelation in uh, Smyrna, where they also receive the crown of life as well. So let's unpack the, uh, uh, James chapter one, let's unpack the whole context, so that we know kind of you know, why James is saying what he's saying. So uh, when you read James, James is a Jewish epistle. It's not a Gentile epistle. It wasn't written to the Gentiles, as you can see the title in verse one. It says to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So who would that be? It's Israel. So uh, this is what's considered the the, uh, one of the five Jewish epistles. Uh, It would include James, Hebrews, Jude, First and Second Peter are, 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 are all Jewish epistles written primarily to a Jewish audience. Uh, Can you make application uh, as a Gentile to the book of James? Of course you can. Um, That's the the Bible's relevant in in all of that application. But it's direct recipients in which it was written was written to Jews. And, and, And then you have to understand then what was the context of why he was saying what he was saying to these particular Jews. So these are Jewish Christians in the diaspora. So the idea of scattered abroad means the diaspora, means they're out of the land. And and so they're in the diaspora, they are believers in Yeshua, um, but they're suffering now persecution and the persecution that they're suffering is from other Jews, primarily wealthier Jews and aristocratic Jews, religious Jews, and that's the the ongoing issue they have. So the early church, uh, it was Jew on Jew persecution and this continued on into like maybe the first century century. and and then as more Gentiles came into the church, uh, obviously it took on a different flavor. But initially, the early church was Jew upon Jew persecution. And uh, to understand what, what what kind of persecution they were going through is, um, in the synagogues, they had three levels of excommunication. I can excommunicate you for... Uh, a week, a 30 days, I believe, and then the next one was permanently. So there were three levels of excommunication. This is where we get our concept in the church of excommunicating people under church discipline. So um, one of the big issues that, that a Jewish person did not want to have happen to them is to be excluded from the synagogue, because if you're excluded from the synagogue, you're cut off from the community. And the community will not have any friendly ties with you. Any, no one in the village will come to you. You won't have any interactions, uh, no business dealings. You're going to have a hard time getting food and, and making a living, quite frankly. And so it depended on the level of excommunication that you had. So what's happening in, in Israel at the time is because of uh, following Yeshua, they're being excommunicated permanently from the synagogues. And uh, that means <coughs> the community won't, won't, won't have anything to do with them. And this is why in the book of Acts, they're putting all their, they're selling their stuff together, putting it together and, and trying to live off of that. It's not a, a long-term solution, obviously, but it's just to get them through, through that short time. So, when, when James writes this, it's really, uh, he, he's writing it in, under that trial, that they're being cut off. This is very serious, and, and a lot of these people are losing their homes, a lot of these people are losing their economic uh, whereabouts and, and whatnot, so they're having major problems. This is not like they're just having a bad day. They have been completely cut off from their community, completely cut off. So anyway, that's where he starts in, in verse one um, to the diaspora, and then he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And, and as you can see in the, in the context, the term fall uh, I- implies that uh, something is happening to you that you didn't bring upon yourself. You actually fell into it. It happened to you. Uh, life is happening to you now. And, you're being, and they were being persecuted. They didn't ask to be persecuted, but it fell upon them. And that's typically how life will go in in various trials is life happens. And the problem with life is it's hard and it's difficult uh, not only because of the fall but because of evil people. And so they have fallen into various trials. Various trials means uh, simply that um, they're having a different variety of persecution that's coming their way, whether it be economic, whether it be social, whether it be familial, families, families cutting them off, whatever, they're, they're getting attacked for being a believer, okay? And, and so it's, it's fallen on them. Now what you'll notice, in, and I've put through the text, is, is James, or Jacob, is, is following the Sermon on the Mount. He's actually following Matthew. And so I've interjected different passages, as you can see, Um, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, is talking about blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? So you'll see James follow the theme as he's going through his epistle. So when he says count it all joy, what he's referring to then is, is not that you take delight in being persecuted or you take delight in anything happening to you that's awful because no one... No one is saying that, and the Bible is not asking that. Um, what it is saying is, you have to have your, the attitude correct when stuff's happening to you. Because if your attitude is not correct, what he's about to say won't work for you. And here's where the, 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 the slip up happens with Christians Christians sometimes think automatically that they, if, they, if they go through a trial, then it changes them. And that's a false notion. It starts with the right attitude when the trial is happening. And if you have the right attitude, then the work that God wants to do will actually happen. But if you resist, if you run, if you say no, if you you refuse to cooperate with the trial that's happening to you, you're not going to stop the trial. I, I want you to know that. The trial will happen. It's your attitude will stop you maturing your attitude will stop you growing. And so you'll go through it, and there's plenty of Christians that go through uh, trials, and they don't come out any better afterwards. Actually, if you if, really, you don't get a neutral position in this. If you decide not to handle a trial well, and you decide to get bittered up and angry and depressed and, and, and unmotivated or whatever you, you wanna do, you go into protest mode, you, I don't know, you pitch a fit, whatever you wanna do, okay? If you decide to do that, you actually will go backwards in your walk with the Lord. You will not stay neutral, nor will you go forward, you actually go backwards. Um, because there's no neutral ground in spiritual walking. It's either you're going forward or you're going backwards. And, and, and so this is the key in understanding James is the first thing you must have is the correct attitude about what's happening to you. Okay, so he says the correct attitude is to have all joy. It's like, it's a, in the Greek, it's like exceedingly joy. And again, it's not asking you to take delight in someone you know uh, beating you up or something like that, but he wants you to see past the trial that there's something else that God is doing beyond it. That's where he wants you to see the joy in, and that's how he, he wants you to focus your attitude in. And, and, and then in verse three, he packs it and unpacks it a little bit, he says knowing. And, and, and knowing in the, in the Greek here is knowing by experience. And he's saying, look man, you already know just by life experience, that um, when you endure hardship, it makes you better. Uh, if you do, endure it properly. If, if you do some athletic contest, uh, if you endure something, uh, you know, some strain on your life or whatever, obviously you can look back in your life and you can point to that and say yes, I benefited from that, you know, I studied hard, I got an A on the test, I, I worked really hard, I passed an exam for a license or whatever and now I can do this and that was really tough but I've experienced going through that trial and there was a blessing that came out of that. So he is already building upon your previous knowledge as a human being in the human experience, that you already know that this is how life is, that if you endure things and you sacrifice now for the future, it actually pays off later. That's a common human trait. Unfortunately, that's not taught, especially in the colleges and universities, because the colleges and universities teach the kids not to sacrifice. They, they teach them to have everything now without you know putting anything off, making any any type of, uh, uh, of uh, hardships in their life. They want to pad their life. So he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So this knowing by experience is the fact that what, the joy, the attitude is that the trial is meant to help a weakness in my faith. The trial is meant to, uh, to uh, I, I have a gap in my game, in my spiritual game, and um, one, one of the gaps is because I am weak in faith, that weakness in faith is not allowing me to be able to endure more, okay? So they are being hit big time, obviously. And what is required of them is going to take more faith to endure. At the current point, they don't have it. And that's why James is saying, look, you need to cooperate here Because God wants to do a a great thing in you by growing your faith so that you actually can take more persecution. That you actually can take more on and more trials in your life. So you can grow to meet the demands of what's happening. So what's happening right now, even currently, and in the church, and I was was in an interview today with Jan Markell and, and Tom Hughes, the church is not meeting the expectations of the demands of what's going on in the, in the reality of, of, of which it sits. Not in America. It's not meeting the, rea- the demands. It, it, will, it can't step up. The reason it can't step up, because it won't grow in faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. And faith, what it does, when you do grow in heart, under trials, it produces endurance. So right now the churches are evidencing that they can't endure the hard times. Look man, 2024 is gonna be off the charts, off the chart crazy. And, 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 and already you're seeing the churches fail and Christians fail because they don't possess inside of them the faith necessary to, to take on the bigger task, to take on what's coming our way. So what'll happen? If you have little faith you'll actually shrink back you won't, you won't be as bold, you won't say as much, you'll stay quiet, you'll try, to st- you'll try to avoid conflict as much as you can, and you won't make an impact in, in the community, you won't make an impact in society, or in your, even in your Christian life. Shrinking back is what the writer of Hebrews is warning about, do not shrink back, okay? Okay, so this is what he's saying if you have the right attitude about what he's putting you through right now, that, that he, he's going to test your faith and what it's gonna cause in, in you is a patience, okay? This patience is hupomeno in Greek and you can in, interpret that as perseverance or endurance, okay? So the purpose of the trial being allowed to come upon your life is so that your faith will increase, so that your endurance of more can increase, that you can actually take on more of life, that you possess now the faith and character that uh, doesn't get overwhelmed, um, you know, when when bad news comes your way, you actually can take it. So here, you know, I'll give you an example. A lot of. A lot of Christians that are not used to growth, they're not, they're not, they're not in churches that actually help them grow. So here it comes you know, uh, guys like myself that talk about what's currently going on. And there's a lot of negative things going on, obviously. And when you start talking like that, they get scared. They don't want to hear it. Do you know why? They spiritually can't take it. They can't endure because they don't have the faith enough to take it. And so they say, that's ah, it's just doom and gloom, and they brush it off like I'm the bad guy, or like you know, Tom's the bad guy, or Billy's the bad guy, or, or one of the other prophecy guys, or are, are the, are they're the doom and gloom guys, or whatever. Even they'll tell that about Jan. And they say, you're the doom and gloom people. But really what it is is they do not possess the capacity to handle more information. And so they have to to close their ears to what's happening and pretend it's not happening because it wrecks their life. And it wrecks their life because they don't have the character necessary. So this is what it's supposed to do. So it produces this this type of endurance. Okay, so he goes in verse four, but let patience, or this, this hupomeno, this endurance perseverance type of thing, have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so if you allow the trial to increase your faith, which increases your endurance, the endurance then produces something in you as well. So there's a chain reaction that's, that's happening. And the chain reaction is that that it, um, it'll have its perfect work. Okay, so here, here's where we, we have to bring out the misunderstanding of Calvinism versus what James is talking about. It is talking about persevering, but the persevering is based on the responsibility of the person responsible to respond to the trial. It doesn't mean that, like the Calvinists do, that just because you're saved, you'll persevere to the end. Perseverance, and we believe in eternal security, that if you're saved, you'll always be saved. Perseverance to the Calvinist means they will always continue to do good work until the day they die, which is a misnomer. That's not the definition of perseverance. The definition of perseverance is hupomeno, which means you have the option to persevere or not. It's your choice. If you don't persevere, you're gonna lose rewards. You're not gonna lose salvation, but you'll lose rewards. And so this is where the concept is coming from, and this is why he's admonishing them Let it have its perfect work. Let it work out. Let perseverance happen in your life so that you can be perfect and complete. Well, what does perfect and complete mean? Lacking in nothing. It means spiritually mature. That's what it means. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with spiritual maturity. So he's saying, look, man, if you want to go get uh, spiritually mature, you have to allow this to happen in your life and, and, and be able to persevere through this. Therefore, you'll increase your capacity, spiritually speaking. (coughs) And then obviously you can see the Matthew passage uh, uh, that he's following in the Sermon uh, on the Mount. Okay. Then he moves in verse five, and he says, okay, so here's the deal. So that's the mechanics of how it works. The mechanics of how it works is you must let it happen. And and, 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 and there's a patience to this. And the patience to this is seen in this text. Because people are gonna say, okay, the first thing they're gonna come to say is, why is this happening to me? I don't understand the nature of the trial. I don't understand the nature of the test. Well, you already know the mechanics of what the test is supposed to do. But then he says, look, if you, if you need help, this is how God's gonna help you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. <clears throat> uh, Matthew seven and seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. <clears throat> what does he mean by this? So here's what's happening. He's saying, look, you're not, if, if you're gonna sit there and piddle around and act as if, well, you, you know, God's not gonna tell me why this is happening and I'll never know, I'll never understand, then you're wrong. He's saying you can go before God and ask him, why is this happening? Okay, you can ask him this question. Now, here's the thing: you may not get an immediate answer. Okay, but he says, if you lack wisdom, I'll give it to you. I'll give it. I I, I won't condemn you. I won't. I'll do it without reproach, and I'll give it to you liberally. I want to tell you why this is happening. Okay, and and uh, a lot of people. They're, they write books about this, like, you know, it, why does bad things happen to good people type of thing. But the writer of James is saying, he wants to answer you. He actually wants to give it to you liberally. He wants you to know the reason. Now here's what you may not know. You may not know why it's happening, but you will know the spiritual reasons for it. That's what James is trying to say. And the spiritual reasons is typically because you and I have a gap in our game. And so when you ask for God, why is this happening to me, he's not gonna tell you the external, he's gonna tell you the internal. The reason this is happening to you is because you lack in this area, and it's a gap in your game, and I want it fixed. And, 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 and if you are honest with me, then we'll work together on this and I will give you more wisdom of how to defeat this and how to overcome this and how to have victory over it if you cooperate with me. But if you dumb up on me and say it's not happening, that's not me, I'm not doing that, we're going nowhere. You will, the information will stop because at that point you have told God you don't want to learn the lesson you don't want to know why the trial is happening. And again, the, uh, you understand, there's two sets of information. The knowledge of the trial, okay, so, uh, I, I don't know, for instance, like, you know, Hamas attacks Israel, okay, that's, that's a certain amount of knowledge. But then there's the spiritual knowledge, why? Why is that happening? It's, well, it's to destabilize Israel, so they'll look to Yeshua to fill in, you know, obviously their salvation. That would be the end. There's, there's two sets of information, right? If all you do is focus in on this information and never get to the spiritual information, it doesn't do you any good. You could say, well, we're, we were, uh, Israel is attacked by Hamas. Great, what are the spiritual ramifications of that? And so the same is true in your own trials. If you just focus on the trial, I got fired. I got. I. 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 I lost my uh, spouse. I. Uh, I got a divorce. I. Um, uh, whatever. Um, I lost a friend. I lost a relationship. I, I got. This. If that's all you focus in on, you're not going to get any better. That's all you're focusing in on. I, I, you know, I lost. I lost my spouse. I. 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 I lost my marriage. No, no. Ask the question, why. Spiritually did that happen to you? Why did this happen to you? Get some introspection, and and, 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 and you're like, man, I know there's a gap, And and here's what the Lord wants you to say. I know there's a gap. I know there's something wrong inside of me. This is not an accident. Lord, give me wisdom into my soul what's happening inside of me. That's what he'll answer. That's what he'll answer. That's what James is talking about, if any of you lack wisdom. You're not gonna be told why you lost somebody you know, 10 years ago. That's gonna be settled in heaven. The issue is, what are you supposed to do with that spiritually right now, in that loss? How are you supposed to grieve? How are you supposed to let this go? How are you supposed to interact with people? Whatever, Whatever the issue is. And until you get there, you're never gonna know. You're gonna go dumb in your spiritual life. And you don't wanna be that way. You want to have that insight. Because he says, look, I wanna give it to you. I wanna tell you. I wanna tell you what's going on inside of you. I want this fixed inside of you. So I will give it liberally to you if you will ask. Okay, then verse six says this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So what's happening here? Well, he's adding another caveat to this and saying, look, I just told you he wants to give you information. God wants to reveal inside of you what's happening to you and why this is happening and and what gaps you have. (coughs) But if you go before him, and you doubt that he can give you the answer that will satisfy you, then don't even do it. Don't even do it, because he's saying, "Look, he has the answer. He wants to tell you." And 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 he goes, verse seven. If you doubt that he can give you that answer, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So if you doubt that God can answer you, he won't answer you, because you're doubting. And it's actually an insult to God to say, well, it's an insult to God to say this, I don't care what his answer is, it won't satisfy me. Okay, if you have that attitude that no matter what answer he gives you won't satisfy you, don't even ask. You're, 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 you're insulting God. Because God will tell you, but you have to believe it's true about you. That's the key. And, and, and then that's, <coughs> that's where it ends and begins. And in verse eight he goes, he is double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So if you doubt that God can't give you the right answer, um, you're gonna have problems with your relationship with him. Okay, so therein lies... The issue, so when you do go before God, and he does give you the information, you're not gonna like it, Uh, it's not pleasant sometimes, Um, it it reveals things that a lot of us would wish would go away, Uh, it reveals gaps, it reveals skeletons in our closet, it it reveals everything, and you can't hide anything from God. Um, So the best thing you can do is cooperate in, in trying to fix those, those, those gaps as best you can, and he wants to, and he will reveal it. Um, <coughs> moving on from that then, what he starts doing then is he will start pointing you in dr- to, to the direction of uh, people that can help navigate through what you're going through. And this is where, you know, the pastors or the counselors or uh, people or spiritual mentors that can come into your life and aid you in that. Because like I mentioned before, when we took break, um, you will always have to have some type of mentoring in your life of someone that's been there, done that, been down the, down the, down the road a little ways. And it says, yeah, yeah, I've been there. Here's, the, here's what to watch out for. Here's where to, to navigate. And that's where... Uh, calling on the brethren, so to speak, uh, comes into play into the church. Because here's what you have to understand. God did not create the body of Christ for you to function independently of it. He created it for you to function in in an uh, uh, interdimensional way uh, connection with it, not a dependency, and not an independence, but a, a kind of an independence to the body of Christ. Because there are people in the body of Christ that have gifts that you don't, that can reveal more about what the issue is. And they, they can help you in that regard. So what, te- what tends to happen is, people start getting into this this, this trial thing and then the devil works on them, and then they start isolating, and they start pulling back, okay? They isolate in their family, they isolate in the church, and before you know it, they're not having any interactions with other Christians whatsoever. And that act of isolation is, um, is, is putting them in a position that they can't get help anymore. Um, and, and and a lot of times people, the, the the gap is revealed, but they don't know how to dig themselves out of it. it. They're stuck. And so they need help from the outside to pull them up and get them out of that stuck position. Um, I, I, would li- I would like to say, yes, absolutely, you know, can God do a miracle and pull anyone out of a hole? Of course he can. That's not the issue. That's... He can do anything, but that's not the norm. That is not the norm. The norm is the person needs help from the body of Christ to get out. They need help to get out, and and so the the strong help the weak is the way the body of Christ functions. So if if you're (coughs) in that mode of trial and you're needing help, then that's the next step. You have to go to that next step and, and, and get the help to dig out of the hole because you, one of the things they'll always tell you, even in like if you go to rehab uh, and any type of rehab thing, you're not gonna do this on your own. You're just not. You're trying to pull yourself out of drugs, you're not gonna do it on your own. You're gonna pull yourself out of alcohol, you're not gonna, pull, you're not gonna do it on your own. It's not gonna happen. Until you admit that you need help and need others to help you, then, 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 then that, that starts the process. But until the person's gonna fly solo, they're not gonna, nothing's gonna happen. So anyway, that's why he is saying, look man, we, we gotta get moving on this and ask for wisdom and then start working on it. Okay, so then he moves into verse nine. Let the lowly bro- bl- brother glory in his exaltation. And you like, saying, this seems <sighs> unconnected. But it, it's all connected, the whole chapter's connected. And so he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And, um, and you're like, what are you talking about, James? Well, he's talking about the, 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 the Jewish brother that's suffering persecution, suffering trials. He's talking about that person. And he's saying, look, what they need to realize is that, that what's happening to them is actually exalting them. How so? Well, it's exalting them in several ways. Number one is, first of all, God wants to work with them. That's that's an exaltation, that God wants to even work with them. Um, Second, um, the fact that what the trial will do is produce perseverance and endurance. That's another exaltation. And then the third exaltation is later on when he says they will get a crown of life. So the reason he is saying that let the lowly brother glory in this exaltation is the fact that three major things will come out of the trial that will actually exalt the believer if he cooperates with God. One of them being the crown, uh, obviously, okay? But then he moves and he switches in verse 10 to rich people. And he says, but the rich is is in humiliation. How so? Well, he's dealing with, remember, the persecution from the rich. Rich Jews are persecuting lowly, poor Jews that don't have anything, okay? And so he throws in the rich in this. He's saying, look, you guys are poor, going through all this mess. You're exalted. But let me tell you something about the rich. They're in their humiliation as well. And and to anyone sitting here saying, I don't see how Bill Gates is humiliated. I don't see how, you know, all these guys are humiliated that are super rich. Bezos and uh, Zuckerberg and all these guys. How are they humiliated? Well, he's saying, think about this. He says, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade in his pursuits. So he's saying, look, you're being per- I'm gonna tell you something about the very people that are persecuting you, the rich, because that's what was happening. He's saying, dude, they're not gonna come to anything. This is the best they get. They're gonna f- fade away like a flower. They can't take their riches with them. You guys are gonna be exalted because you're gonna be rewarded. You're gonna have spiritual gifts, and they have nothing. And so he's trying to s- set a balance with them versus their tormentors that are doing this to them because the first thing um, that, that, that anyone that's suffering persecution from people like this is you see that your tormentors don't suffer. That's ma- the major problem. Uh, Psalm 73, you'll see that you know, it looks like the wicked get away with everything and they sleep at night and, and, and nothing ever bothers them and life just keeps going on and, and it's great for them and stuff like that. And he's saying, you're being short-sighted and number one, that's because of a lack of your faith. Realize these people are going to die. And what's, gonna be, what's Bill Gates? If, he, you know, if Bill Gates never gets saved, what did it matter? What did it matter he had all that money? What did it matter any, any of these people had all their power and glory or whatever on this earth? When you're dead and gone and we're a, a, a million years into eternity, doesn't matter. We won't even remember these guys. And that's what he's trying to say. So he goes... Don't envy your tormentors. Um, he goes, they're, worse, they're in a humiliated state worse than you. Then he goes on and he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, he broadens this out in verse 12. And it, it's Perasmos um, and, and uh Parosmos obviously, in the, in the text means trials, but then he broadens it out to, temp, to include temptation. So he's, he's going to extend it out a little bit more. <coughs> For when he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's the third exaltation of the crown of life. So blessed or, or happy is the man who endures these types of trials or temptations. okay. So uh, the, the, the crown of life is a future reward aspect for endurance under trials. That's the definition of it. And it'll, it'll be given to believers at the Bema Seat for those who suffer well, who suffer well their whole life, who suffer trials their whole life and suffer well. Uh, it's not like a one-time thing. It has to be a general disposition of the person throughout their entire life. Now, you may not start well, but it's a matter of how you finish. And if you finish well, you can receive this crown. It's given to anybody that endures properly. Um, and, and notice at the end of this, it says, um, it's promised to those who love him. Do you see the caveat? It, just, it doesn't say it's just promised to... People endure. It, just, it says it's promised to people who love him. And that's a, that's a caveat. You have to take into consideration. Um, <clears throat> we're not only dealing with people, that, uh, Christians that have to endure uh, the suffering, but their attitude has to be right not only in accepting the suffering, but their attitude about God has to be right too. They have to love him. And I I know that sounds strange to say, but not every believer loves God as they should. That's the problem. The Ephesus church didn't love God as they should. They had forsaken their first love. And and again, in Hebrew terms, um, you know, we're not talking about an emotional thing with God. We're talking about a priority with God. And to love God means to put him number one in my life. And, And the fact that, okay, If I love God and I prioritize God as number one in my life, that means I accept what he brings to my life, okay? If I don't prioritize God, the things that he brings to my life, I will fight him on. I will get into a fighting match with him because I don't like what he's putting on me because I don't like him. I don't like what he's doing to me and I don't like the relationship that I have with God and therefore it keeps me at a distance from him Even though I do say I love God, but I'm not as close as I would be with God because every time I get close, he keeps hurting me. So I don't want to get that close to him. And so therefore, their love wanes and they push back. And you can see this in the life of the Messiah Uh, as he was doing his ministry, there was concentric circles around him. And the closer you get to him, the more price you're gonna pay. The more sacrifice you're going to make, the closer you get. So a lot of people kept their distance. They followed him at a distance, the 120. Then you had the 70. Then you had the 12. Then you had the three. Then you had the one. And it was all concentric circles going out. And, and based on those concentric circles, it was based on how much was a person willing to sacrifice for the Lord in their love for him. And uh, and so, the love issue becomes a factor in this crown. That love must be there for God, which means he must be the priority, which means if he's the priority, I'm allowing him to, uh, to ta- have these trials to come into my life to have their work in me. <coughs> so then, he, he, I, 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 I wanna broaden it out, and, and James broadens it out a little bit more, because he's, he's expecting something to happen here. He's expecting a reaction. In verse 13 he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Why would he have to say that? Because what's happening is the natural reaction of not loving God and not wanting to accept the trial is to blame God for tempting them to do something stupid in the trial. And, and that's why James is broadening it out, past trials to include temptation, because the default is, well God is putting me through this temptation, and, and I can't bear it, it's too much for me, I have to do this, I have to, I have to be able to survive, and it's just too much of a temptation, why would God bring this on me? And so what they end up doing is conflating trial with temptation. And that's the major theological mistake that believers make is when they conflate the two. What'll happen in a trial is God will give you a trial or a test and he may allow a tempter in the trial. But it's not him. It could, could be a demon. It could be a person. It could be a, a Satan like in the Garden of Eden. He can, he, God will allow a tempter, but he will not tempt. So what tends to happen is people will take the trial from God and conflate it with the tempter and put the two together and blame God for not only the trial, but the temptation as well. And that's why James is, is reacting to that, saying, whoa, 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 you can't say that. You can't say he's tempting you because then you would be claiming that God is evil and God doesn't do that. Uh, will he allow temptation? Of course, but he allows temptation to a limit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You are not tempted beyond what you can bear. So God even restrains Satan and the demons for how much they can tempt you and he puts the restraint on them. So they can only go so far. So you can never ever theologically say, I couldn't resist the temptation. Because 1 Corinthians 10 would militate against that and say no you could and he provided a way out and he put a limit on it. So. He's expecting these believers to get so ticked off at God is to start blaming them for the, for the temptation. Well, what's the temptation that they're, they're dealing with? Well, the, 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 the temptation to compromise, the temptation to go back into Judaism, the, 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 the temptation to deny Christ, all, all those kinds of things um, is, is what's in front of them. And they're... they're He's saying, you can't go to God with this. So then what he does is he turns it on them and says, let me tell you the origin of where temptation comes from. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the way the, way the sin nature works then is uh, the person sees something and they want it, okay? Okay? They're enticed by it. So that's the first stage. So he says, don't blame that on God. If if a temptation is happening to you during a trial, that is coming from you. That is coming from your own desire. Maybe a desire to escape the trial. Most temptations in trials are coming in forms of escape. People want to escape the trial. So the temptation is a temptation to escape. And that could be drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. It's a a temptation to escape. But he's saying, look, it's coming from you. So you have to nip it in the bud of why are you wanting to escape? Well, I don't want to endure. Why don't you want to endure? Because if you'd endured, it would increase your character. Well, I don't want to increase my character. So let's just be honest. Okay, you don't want to increase your character. So if you don't want to increase your character, so you're gonna find a way of escape. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes, that's what I'm trying to do, Brandon. But I'm gonna to try to blame that on God? And James is saying, you can't do that because you're being enticed to escape, to run, when you can endure. And he goes, let me tell you something else. If you continue in this process, James is saying, you're gonna introduce the death principle into your life. And the death principle is this, the wages of sin is death, physical death. So he says, look, then when desire has conceived, so let's say you want to escape from the trial that you're in and you have figured out uh, an escape hatch, you're gonna get your will involved. That's where the will starts getting involved in this. And once you have a desire, and once you say, yes, I'm willing to go after that desire, it gives birth to sin. It mothers sin. And notice he uses the word gives birth. It it conceives. So that's how sin comes out of us. It's through the will, through the desire. The desire and the will meet, and once that is met, it, it goes into effect and causes sin. Okay, so... The person sins as a form of escape. Let's just say they're escaping into drugs. Okay, so they're, they're they so that's it, it, so the, the the desire to escape and the will to leave cause them to do the drugs. Okay, then he says this, and sin. So that's sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Now notice there, he's using uh, language of how a body would grow, right? He's not saying you instantaneously die. What does he say? When it's what? Full grown. So, let's say the person escapes into drugs. They do a hit of drugs, okay, to escape. It ain't gonna kill them. Maybe it does kill them if they do fentanyl or something, I don't know, but, but they get away with it, okay? Then they do it again, then they do it again, and they keep doing it as a habitual pattern of a way of escaping in their life, okay? Habitual pattern starts being created. So what's happening? The sin is growing. It is becoming full grown. It's moving from adolescence, it's moving now to teenager, and then what? When it's a full adult, which means time has been given to it. Repeated actions have been given to it. Habitual actions have been given to it. Now it's an adult. Once it's an adult, what does it do? It, it will bring forth death. It will now start introducing the death principle of, every, of what sin does. It starts prematurely killing you you start prematurely, physically dying an early death if you continue on, if, if repentance doesn't happen. Okay? Now you can arrest this at any point in time by repentance, okay? You have to stop, right, you, you have to stop. If you don't stop, you will end up killing yourself. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, 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 people don't consider this as a premature death, but honoring your father and mother, if you do not honor your father and mother, you will die a premature death. That's a guarantee. That's a promise in that, 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 that passage. It's not, it's not just a Ten Commandment passage, that's carried over into the New Testament. That you will live long if you honor your father and mother. If you don't, you won't. You will die a premature death. There's a sin penalty attached to that. What is the sin unto death that First John talks about? <coughs> sin unto death is that you, you continue to repeat a sin um, that, that has um, uh, physical consequences to it and it eventually kills you. That's, that's what it's talking about. So in, in this passage, brings forth death is not referring to spiritual death. It can't be because you know who he's talking to? He's talking to believers. So he's, the issue of spiritual death is not even on the topic. Uh, this, James is not a book written to unbelievers. It is written to believers. So since we're not dealing with spiritual death because spiritual death has been taken care of by coming to faith in the Messiah, right? So that's taken care of. The only death he could be talking about is physical death, and he does. He talks about death in, in chapter one, verse 20, and then chapter five, verse 21 or somewhere in that neighborhood, he's he's talking fully about physical death, about this. Oh, so now we bring this all together. And he's saying, yeah, there's some some bigger things. Do not be deceived, my beloved beloved brethren. Not unbelievers, my beloved brethren. Here's a one-two punch for us to understand this. First, if you react correctly... It will do its good work. God will work in you and you will have the crown of life, guaranteed. It's a promise to those who love him. It's a guarantee you'll have it. If you decide to fight against him, to work against him in your life, to to not cooperate, to blame God for your temptations, for blaming God for what you're doing and that that sin gives birth to death, you will end up with no reward at the end. So he's saying, look, you could have one or two options, but do not be deceived. It's either one or the other. There's no middle ground here is what he's trying to say on that. And then he goes on, look, he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Why would he need to say that? Because he's saying, look, God the Father wants to give you a good gift. The good gift is the crown of life. The good gift is perseverance and endurance. The good gift is faith. Those are the good things. And we know they're good because he's unchangeable. There's no variation or shadow in his turning in his character. So we know out of the essence of God that everything he gives to us from above is good. You cannot say that I I don't want the crown of life. That's not a good thing. You can't say that. He is determining it. So therefore, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so he's saying, look, as as sin gives birth to death, our heavenly Father, who is good and gives us good things, brought us forth. He, 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 He created us, and because we believed in him, he made us born again, and so we're this kind of first fruit creature and we have yet to realize all that we can be when we are rewarded. So we've got a glorious future ahead because he's a good father and wants to help us. So that's how he concludes the whole package of saying, why would you not want this? Why would you not see that this is a good thing for you? And, 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 and then he just ends it like that and then he goes into chapter two uh, uh, and and starts going into uh, what living faith is versus dead faith. Okay, let me stop there. Any questions about that? That's a lot to digest. <coughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Pastor. Uh, on the tempter section you were talking about, how many, you know, could you expound on Christians listening to the news, to the world, to instead of Christian counsel, they go to ungodly counsel for all their answers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's been the problem in, in Christian counseling is people are going to secular counseling. And I can tell you why. In secular counseling, they're never going to get to the major issue. In, 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 in typical secu- secular counseling, um, they want to make the, the patient feel good because they want to repeat customer. Okay? Because people make money by seeing you many, 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 many many times. Um, And and so there's a game being played. But then in modern psychology, modern psychology might be able to identify what's actually going on in your life. They might, some some counselors are very good at, at actually getting to the root of what the problem is. But here's the problem, they don't know how to get you out. Because the answer to get you out is a spiritual answer and they don't have it. So identification is typically what you'll see in modern psychology, and people think they're healed because they've identified their quips. Oh, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that, and they think that brings healing. It doesn't, all it does is identify the sin and it has not gotten the root out. You have to, by spiritually, have to get the root out in order to be healed, so, so to that question, that's where people get stuck. And, the, and they're proud in the fact that, oh, I identify as a, a wounded narcissist. I'm a wounded narcissist. Feel sorry for me, right? And it's like, well, yeah, you, I, I, we all realize you're a wounded narcissist, but what are you gonna do to change? Oh, I don't know. Just feel sorry for me. Pastor, when you were talking about temptation, <coughs> Uh, God cannot be tempted, and he does not tempt, right? But I've always wondered, and I've asked this before of other pastors, but I've never really gotten an answer to satisfy myself, so I thank you for talking about it tonight. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, and lead us not into temptation. And I thought, if God can't be tempted, and he doesn't tempt, then why did they... uh, Word it that way. Yeah, it's funny, yeah, he would say say it's it's worded funny. Um, um, Obviously, lead us not into temptation. Um, We we use the hermeneutic principle of the analogy of scripture. And what I mean by that is scripture interprets scripture. That's the principle. So when you have a, a, a text like in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, what you have to do is, if it doesn't make sense in that context, is you have to look in other contexts for more information about that particular subject matter. So that's what we call the analogy of scripture, okay? So, there, so this is what you do. Okay, so, lead me not into temptation, but yet it says God doesn't tempt anyone in James. But then there must be an answer somewhere else in scripture that would give me more insight about temptation. And so what I would do is I would scan through scripture, look through all the topics of, of, of temptation, study them, and then what I would find, and this is the answer to this, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the answer to what Jesus is saying is modified, I, should, I shouldn't say modified, but explained in more detail by the apostle Paul saying that when we ask the Lord, deliver us from temptation, we are asking him to put on the restrictions and the, and the ability to escape as promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's the restrictions that Paul says is what we're asking for, to deliver us from temptation. It, um, because he, 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 didn't, he doesn't deliver us per se, But what he he promises is to provide a way of escape in the temptation and a limit. So that's what you're actually praying in the Lord's Prayer. And (coughs) you would have to do the analogy of Scripture to marry that with the Apostle Paul and any other passages about temptation to understand the full-orbed perspective. And that's what you have to do with a lot of passages, guys. That's, That's not just some isolated thing that she said. That's a great example of that um, there's other passages like, I don't know what that means, man. You're like, what is this thing that he's saying here? And then what you have to do is you have to just keep scanning the scriptures until you get to the, another to- the topic. This is why we call it systematic theology um, in, in seminary. And why do, we, why do we systemize theology? So, for instance, um, <coughs> she brought up the issue of uh, temptation. Uh, temptation would fall under the theology banner of harmatology, of sin, uh, how, how, how an individual sins. Um, and so you would have to take from, from Genesis to Revelation in systematic theology and put all the passages together, systematized, into a coherent understanding of what is the nature of temptation to have a harmatology doctrine, if that makes sense. Or for instance, if I want to study the Trinity, I can't study just one aspect, uh, maybe at the baptism of, 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 of the Lord, right, where the Trinity is evident. I would have to go from Genesis all the way to Revelation and put all the Trinitarian passages together and systematize them in order to get a full doctrine of understanding the Trinity, right? That's, so in your Bible study, what you, you have to do is, is is harmonize the different topics together and put them together. And then what will happen is, it's kind of like getting clues. Like, oh, there's a clue here, there's a clue here, there's a clue here, there's a clue here. And then all of a sudden, you put all the clues together, it's a puzzle and it, it fits and it makes a perfect um, uh, like, uh, you know, picture. Now, why do you think God did that? This is, this is like bonus and we're gonna take a break. Why do you think God spread theology all through the Bible and, and didn't just say Chapter one, hermatology; Chapter two, Trinity? Why, why did he Why did he scatter it all through the entire sixty six books? So you would read it. So you would read it all. It's probably more than what you probably. Yeah. True. Yeah. So, what is that expecting, though? Expects on you study. Yeah, you you've got to search out the scriptures like finding gold. So, so for you, yes, it, it's a it's a digging for gold to find the the truths. Right. It, he, he actually wants to make it a little tough on you to find the answer because he doesn't spoon feed anyone. That's number one. Number two is enemy interception. Did you catch that? The first, okay, so the first one is for you. You have to study, right? You have to work hard. Uh, going through scriptures is like digging for gold. You, you, you have to put the work in, okay, it's hard work, but it pays off, right, okay. The second thing is enemy, enemy interception. Who's the enemy? Okay, so the Bible is laid out as if it is expecting enemy interception. Therefore, all of its doctrines are not in one book, If you put all the doctrines in one book and you lost that book, you have enemy interception. So the doctrines of God, all of them are spread out through all 66 books so that Satan cannot delete anything because if he tries to take a piece out here, that doctrine is taught over here. You can't erase the doctrine. The Bible is written expecting enemy interception. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.